given that you know all traditions perceive the infinity and eternity of cosmic mind god allah great mystery great spirit whatever name we choose then maybe universes are as i say finite thoughts mm. that arise from the from the ground of all being that mm. is the eternal infinite mind of god of mm. cosmic mind and so Welcome to Rebel Spirit Radio, exploring the frontiers of spirituality, consciousness, the esoteric, and humanity's sacred relationship with a living earth. I'm your host, Nick Mather, and in this episode, I'm joined by cosmologist, futurist, and planetary healer, Jude Kuravan, PhD, to discuss her latest book, The Story of Gaia. In a wide-ranging discussion, Jude explains why the big breath is more appropriate than the Big Bang how the universe is a great thought of cosmic mind, and how we all participate in singing the universe into being. Also, please be sure to like and subscribe to this podcast on whatever platform you use to listen to or view podcasts. Your support is truly appreciated. Jude Kuravan, PhD, is a cosmologist, futurist, planetary healer, member of the Evolutionary Leader Circle, and previously one of the most senior businesswomen in the UK. She has a master's degree in physics from Oxford University and a doctorate in archaeology from the University of Reading. She has traveled extensively, worked with wisdom keepers from many traditions, and is a lifelong researcher into the nature of reality. She is the author of six previous books, including The Cosmic Hologram, and is co-founder of Whole Worldview. She joins me today to discuss her latest publication, The Story of Gaia, The Big Breath and the Evolutionary Journey of Our Conscious Planet. Jude, welcome to Rebel Spirit Radio. Thank you, Nick. It's an absolute delight. And I feel ourselves sort of holding hands across the pond with yeah. me in the UK and, and you, of course, in the US in, in California. Yeah, hopefully, hopefully. We have, <laughs> we have good connections with the UK, I think. So I'm very much looking forward to speaking with you. I'm a, a little nervous because I don't have a great background in science, but I did enjoy the story of Gaia. And I've read some similar books, but yours is different. I think you've got a little bit of a different message from people like Thomas Berry and Brian Swim, you know, the universe story and James Lovelock, you know, Gaia theory and whatnot. But I wanted to begin, I found it really interesting, your doctorate in archaeology. And that kind of surprised me to know that you had a doctorate in archaeology to read this book. But my understanding is you did an archaeology of cosmology. Is that correct? Yeah. I mean, in, in any PhD, regardless of what it, it is, you have to do original research. Mm -hmm. And having done my master's degree at Oxford many years before, specializing in cosmology and quantum physics, mm. and cosmology really is the study of, of the whole universe. In my case, it's the study of the whole universe and beyond. Mm. Uh, but in that sense, my PhD in archaeology was researching ancient cosmologies. Mm. In other words, what ancient peoples gave narrative to, to give meaning and purpose for, for the world and the whole world and their place in it. And I think cosmology has been that sort of study of who we are, where we come from, maybe where we're going ever since, whether it's leading edge science or whether it's spiritual traditions or whatever it may be. Yeah. Now, do you have, did you discover a sort of a common thread among these any of the ancient cosmologies, or are they relevant to, or maybe provided a little bit of a forward to <laughs> where we are now? The answer is yes and yes. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, obviously, different cultures. I've just I've just completed a sixteen module online course for humanities team called our conscious revolution mm. empowering our journey to wholeness and 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 being belonging and so what i talk in there and what i speak a little bit about in the story of gaia are the way in which ancient cultures tended to have one of three ways of knowing of, of interpreting reality mm. there was the way of the sage which is the way of the mind and trying to understand what's going on 
there's the way of the experiential, the shaman, the way of the heart, as I described it, as I describe it. And then there's a way that the, the, the path of mysticism and revelation, the path of seer. And ancient traditions tended to emphasize, and indigenous traditions tend to emphasize one of those paths to that perception of wholeness and, and meaning and purpose. And I'm suggesting that now we're integrating all three paths. Mm. So if we go back to the ancient cultures that really were the, the, the path of understanding, they talk about reality as being vibrational in many instances. Mm. They talk about it being made up of geometrical relationships. So, you know, the idea of music and geometry play, play a big role in, in those traditions. And of course, we're now finding too that our, our, the energy matter of our universe is vibrational. Mm. So we, we are actually in a resonant and vibrational harmonic universe from that perspective. But the other traditions, both ancient and indigenous, are this sense of the interconnectedness of all life and life beyond mm. biological organisms, you know, all our relations. And then the third one is revelation, which is a, a revelation ultimately of wholeness. And, and so all of those ways and leading edge science are now coming into this convergence to mm. describe what I'm sharing in previously the cosmic hologram and now in the story of Gaia. Right. And, you know, one of the traditions that you write about in the story of Gaia, you kind of go back to it a few times, is the Vedic tradition of India. In fact, you know, you instead of the Big Bang, you refer to the Big Breath. <laughs> and you make this connection with the kind of the creation imagery we get in the Upanishads of Brahman, sort of breathing out the universe in a sense. Absolutely. And the reason I did that is, is, is you know, all the research shows that our universe began 13.8 billion years ago. That's our best estimate at the moment. Mm. So that's when, you know, our universe came into being. But we were taught at school that it did so as a big bang. Right. And it wasn't big and it wasn't a bang. <laughs> it's the bond that, you know, the big aspect of it's a bit facetious because we know right. it began in a tiny, tiny, tiny state. It's a minute state. But when we, I mean, if I ask you, what would the word bang mean to you? Right. How would you answer? Oh, kind of explosive. Yeah. Chaos yeah. explosion. Yeah. yeah. We know that our universe didn't begin in that way. It began in an ama amazingly ordered state, mm. as simple as it could be, but no simpler than then evolved to complexity over time. But it also began in an exquisitely fine-tuned state. Mm. And the laws of physics, which we're now seeing more as instructions, you know, informational mm. instructions of how to make a perfect universe, are so relational, and that's where the ancient understandings come of, you know, geometric relational and an exquisite patterning and, and all the rest of it. So I describe this as our beginning of our universe as the first moment of an ongoing big rest. So not mm. as a single event, mm. but almost yeah. breathing our universe into being, which is exactly as you're describing, the breath of Brahman. So mm -hmm. it refers back to the Upanishads in that regard. And it also refers back to the book, the Story of Gaia. I also mention about the, the, uh, the, the primordial sound mm -hmm. that our yes. universe made as it came into being. Yeah, there are a few things I want to dig in uh, with what you just said. But it occurs to me that within many of the spiritual traditions, there is this emphasis on breath and the original breath. And I don't know if you're familiar with David Abrams. He wrote Spell of the Sensuous. And I, I think this is in the book, but I also saw him speak once where he referred to the God of the Hebrew Bible, Yahweh. And, you know, we're not entirely sure how to pronounce that because of how Hebrew was, but he said that Yahweh was the most breath-like of the, the, the letters, the yod veh hey were the most breath-like. Yes. And so he, he pronounced it like, yeah, ah, wah, hey, as that kind of cosmic breath. And so yeah. I was thinking about that as well, and that it's so amazing that we find all of these connections in traditions that are so far apart, and it begins with breath, and that the focus is on our breath as well. Yes. 
And I yes. think that gets into something else that I hope we'll talk about a little bit about mind and consciousness of, of the universe. But um, let me ask you, and I think this is also common. You were talking about the vibrational levels in the sound of the universe, which you connect to Aum or Aum if we want. And I love that you wrote that, you know, we do indeed sing our universe into being. Mm. And is this a participatory song? Well, the whole universe is participatory. It, mm. the, all the evidence across many scales of all scales of mm. existence and many, many different fields of research are showing that, and this is what I do write about in the story of Gaia, that our universe exists and evolves mm. as a living, sentient, evolving, unified entity. Mm. And so it's a completely participatory universe where everything within it, as well as the universe as a whole, essentially are part of its co-evolutionary journey. Mm. So when we talk about singing, our universe singing, we now know that in the first 370, 380,000 years from the first moment of the big breath, the universe was too hot mm. to allow for transparency of light, but it was transparent to sound. So the evidence we have is that acoustic sound pulses were pulsing through the whole of space through that first epoch. And during that time, as space eventually expanded enough and time flowed forward, it, it reduced its temperature, it became visible to light. But in the beginning was this primordial om, mm. as the ancient Vedic traditions tell us, and also the Bible talks about in the beginning was the word. Right. And that on literally pulsed the first possibilities of the energy and matter of our universe into what would become over hundreds of millions years of years later, the first stars and then the emergence of the first galaxies. Yeah. What I find so fascinating about this is that these ancient seers can know this is and is it do you think that they're tapping into this knowledge this information that we all have quite likely i mean yeah. what we now know is is as i mentioned our universe exists and evolves as a what's called a non-locally unified mm -hmm. entity so within space time the speed of light is like the the, the cosmic speed cop you know no signal mm -hmm. can go faster than the speed of light and that's really important mm -hmm. because otherwise we would not have had the flow of time from that 13.8 billion year origin to now and therefore the whole causality running through space time to now and beyond and yet our entire universe is non-locally unified so we have it has access to itself and its its own consciousness self-reflective and equally everything in existence that is sufficiently self-aware to be aware of that as also the natural attribute to do so, including ourselves. Hmm. Now, you also write in the book that the universe is finite. Mm -hmm. And I'm curious because I know that with the limited scientific knowledge that I do have, that there are a couple of different ways of thinking about the expansion of the universe and what's going to happen. And one I think is that it's just going to run out of heat eventually. And, you know, in its expansion, just kind of peter out, I guess. But there's also this idea of a kind of a retraction. Mm -hmm. And I was wondering, because thinking about that and reading the book about breath, and I was wondering the model you think fits best, you know, is it, if, if the universe is a breath out, is there also going to be an inhalation? Is it going to be this kind of constant, is it a constant flow of creation, destruction, creation, which seems to mirror what we find in the Vedic traditions? I am a great respecter of the Vedic traditions. Where I feel that the evidence now is, is, is leading us, is showing us, is yes, that our universe is finite. It began a finite time ago. Mm -hmm. It began in a finite spatial extent. We now know that in its first billions of years, there was a rapid amount of star formation, which, of course, hoovered up 
the, the, mm. the, 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 the primordial hydrogen. And we now know that that really peaked many billions of years ago. And the amount of hydrogen now left to create new stars is, is, is very small. So that's one aspect that suggests that, you know, it, it will not go on forever. The other thing is that there is, and this is what I, I write about both in the cosmic hologram and the story of Gaia. We're taught, most of us who do any science at school are taught about three fundamental laws of thermodynamics. And they are vital to this new framing of how our universe exists and evolves and what may happen. And what I've done is I've expanded those three laws of thermodynamics to three laws of what I call infodynamics. So based mm -hmm. on information, but information expresses energy matter. In the first law, information expressed in a different way, but complementary way of space time. And then the third law, and this is where there is another piece of evidence that suggests our universe will be finite or is finite, is that it began in its hottest form, smallest form, hottest form. The third law of, of thermodynamics to infodynamics says that in a system such as our universe, a closed system, which it needs to be for the rest of the laws of physics really to work, that the temperature is what's called inversely proportional to its informational content. So at the first moment of space-time, the informational content of our universe was at its lowest level, its temperature was at its highest level. Space has expanded and time's flowed forward. It's been able to embody ever more informational content so as as the temperatures dropped. So we're at a point where instead of a, a, an in-breath after the out-breath, it is likely that a point of time will come and maybe only tens of billions of years hence, where the cycle, the life cycle's complete because yeah. the temperature will have dropped to very close to absolute zero. And we're only mm. a few degrees above that now for the whole of space. And yet the informational content will be at its highest. Mm. So it's, it's literally a universe that lives through a life cycle from simplicity to complexity, ever greater levels of embodied experience and evolution to a point that it has come to the end of its life. Now, what happens then? And this is the great question. Mm. But, you know, we're finding the best definition we're finding to describe our universe now goes back to what an Edwardian scientist called Sir James Jeans spoke of a century ago, that our universe is being shown to be more like a great thought mm. than a great thing. And consciousness and mind aren't something we have, but literally what we in the whole world are. So think of that as a, a mm. thought form in the infinite and eternal mind of the cosmos. Mm. And maybe at the end of our universe's life story, all that garnered experience can be dissipated into the infinity and eternity of the cosmic plenum, enriching mm. the mind of God. Mm. Mm. Very fascinating. So you think that there was a consciousness that preceded the big breath? Yes. And that will persist. <laughs> that will persist after the last breath. Given, given that our, if our universe, as as we've got the best evidence for, is finite, mm -hmm. and how any of us can really know infinity and eternity right, right. in human form, mm -hmm. given that you know all traditions perceive the infinity and eternity of cosmic mind, God, Allah, great mystery, great spirit, whatever name we choose, then. Maybe universes are, as I say, finite thoughts mm. that arise from the from the ground of all being that mm. is the eternal, infinite mind of God, of mm. cosmic mind. And so, yes, there is inev inevitably then, you know, our cosmic mind dreams mm. our universe into <laughs> being. Right. Our universe is a great thought of that cosmic mind. Mm. And at the end of our universe that understanding, that great thought will complete. But how many 
other great thoughts. Yeah. So, so in connection with all of this, I'm going to try to express this as best as I can. I'll probably fumble a little bit here, but in the cosmology that you're presenting at the initial condition, you know, there's information and I'm curious, I want to know about information, but this question is there's increasing information and there's a connection between information and consciousness. And Mm -hmm. so is it fair to suggest that maybe what's happening is an expansion of consciousness throughout the universe. And if that initial consciousness that precedes everything, could it be that, and this is like a different version of divinity, I suppose, but that God is also on a to use that term, I don't know if that's the best term, but is exploring their own consciousness and also experiencing an expansion of consciousness. And that's what the universe is. I think all the other, um, <laughs> I mean, to take a step back on, yeah. on, on your point about information, because how does cosmic mind, the infinite eternal mm. cosmic plenum, how does cosmic mind, the consciousness, the mind, full consciousness of cosmic mind create a universe right and the best understanding we now have coming from as i say many many different fields of research at all scales is that that happens by articulating that mindful consciousness that causative impulse in digitized as digitized information now we imbue meaning in our lives by using words Mm. and emotions of course but when we communicate our mode of communication is is used as a language our consciousness expresses itself as a language and our english language has 26 letters each of those letters of themselves don't have any meaning a b c d but when we bring them together in words and sentences and paragraphs and stories and songs and poems they have meaning for us as human beings they have meaning for us now whether we as human beings were part of the evolutionary impulse of our universe or not there has been this evolutionary arc to self-aware individuation of, 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 of consciousness so there may be many other beings on many other different planets in many different galaxies that also imbue their experience of, of our universe and themselves in a language of whatever it may be. Now, our universe as a whole does so in a language of just two letters, mm-hmm. the ones and zeros of digitized information. Now, that is, of course, how our telecommunications are based. They're based mm-hmm. on digitized information and they're based on digitized meaningful information we can do gobbledygook we can do all sorts of nonsense but we're able to have this conversation because the words i'm using are then translated into whole streams of ones and zeros of digitized information as is my image squirted down a cable possibly bounced off a satellite into your computer and then recombined to form meaningful words communication and and images our universe does that in terms of cosmic mind expressing this causational universal journey of experience and evolution articulated as digitized information held on its boundary of what we call space-time projected this will completely blow your mind, holographically <laughs> to form the 3D appearance of our universe where everything from the smallest scales, as small as to an atom as an atom is to our whole universe, pixelated and then combined to form atoms and molecules and planets and plants and people. So the entirety of who we are how we are, what we are, are meaningfully informed 
holographically manifested microcosmic co-creators of our entire universe. And that doesn't, this is reality. Mm. Difference, the only difference from the paradigm of a reality that we've looked into is that our reality is unified. In other words, the appearance of our universe, its materiality, its appearance of separation, first of all, isn't its fundamental nature. And secondly, we are all inseparable mm. from each other in our entire universe. And yet, unity is not uniformity. Mm. It's radical diversity. And that gives us its richness and the experiential and the evolutionary and the relational. That is the, the, you know, the basic meaning and evolutionary purpose to all that we mm. call our universal reality wow yeah so is it fair then to say with that model that the material world is in a sense a kind of and maybe this is incorrect but kind of a condensation mm, of it's a nice thought it's a nice way of putting it i think the only thing to say there to add to that because yes because information the basic the fundamental stuff of our the reality of our universe is in meaningful in hyphen formation. Yeah. And yet it's that information expressed as the vibrational quantized energy matter. And it's also in a complementary way expressed as the space time of our universe. So yes, we are, it's you know, our universe's wonderful vibrational dance. Yeah. And yet it's completely as the ancient understood. This is the, you know, they talked about the harmony of the spheres. This is the entire harmony of our universe's story. You know, one teaching that went up through the Middle Ages and on, deep, profound wisdom is called the quadrivi quadrivium. Yeah. And it speaks of, you know, music as number mm -hmm. in time geometry as number in space where number and therefore information accumulated in new in number and then there is the cosmology of number which is the wholeness of how our universe exists and evolves mm. yeah the pre-socratic philosophers got a lot right i think uh, you know just... pythagoras right oh. Absolutely. And of course, there is a view that Pythagoras got all his stuff really from the ancient Egyptians. Mm -hmm. And it goes back, you know, and yeah. it's been exoteric sometimes, it's been esoteric mm -hmm. at other times. And yeah. it's really coming into full, you know, expression and and and, and rehonoring now alongside this leading edge of science. Yeah. And I also know not just Egypt, but there also seems to be connections with ancient India as well. Indeed. I, yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So does the consciousness of the universe, is there intention to it? And can we know that intention if there is intention? <laughs> well, I guess to create a universe, there has to be an initial intention. Yeah. <laughs> So, so that intention flows. So the question is, what is that intention? Yeah. And for me, I asked this question right at the beginning of the story of Gaia. And why? Mm -hmm. Why would the cosmos have this have this incredible audacity to create this wonderful, marvelous universe? And the the answer I come to for myself, but hopefully for many readers of the story of Gaia, is a universe that doesn't just meaningfully exist but purposefully to evolve, mm. embodies an, an innate evolutionary impulse to evolve, from, to evolve from its initial simplicity to ever greater levels of complexity and individuated self-awareness. So as you said earlier, it can know itself at every level of its innate beingness through that evolutionary process. So where that evolutionary process in its specificity takes the journey, is that openness and that potentialization, but it's always been from that initial simplicity of hydrogen 
all the way through generations of stars and galaxies and interstellar dust clouds, interplanetary systems, and planets, water planets such as Gaia, able to nurture the ongoing complexity then of biological emergence and onward. And, and it's always about conscious evolution at that those you know, individuated mm. levels as well as the universe as a whole. Yeah, well, and it makes me think of, you know, we always hear this idea that we are stardust. And I, I, I think that's true. But I also like that you bring in this idea that, yeah, we're stardust in some ways, but we're also the mind there's more to it than just the dust <laughs> <You know? laughs> well without the dust we wouldn't be sitting here having yeah, the conversation yeah, 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 I, yeah. I completely agree but yeah. also you know even older than that because the, you know the hydrogen in the water yeah. and the, the cells of our bodies is as old as the universe yeah moments from being literally yeah. as old as the universe yeah. it was only hundreds of millions of years later that the first generations of stars came into being and subsequently then through their whole alchemy of, mm -hmm. of chemical complexity then came up with all you know the natural elements that then themselves were accumulated in interstellar clouds of dust and gas and ice that were then the nurturing they were the, the sort of the stellar nurseries for planetary systems such as ours. And then we come into being as a planetary system and, and, a, and a, a planetary home, Gaia as a water planet, and onward we go. Yeah. yeah. One of the things that I really enjoyed about the book, it, it, this idea came to mind when you were describing the creation of our solar system and you spell that, you know, S-O-U-L-A-R uh, and universal, the instead of S-A-L, it's a S-O-U-L as well. But you were talking about the creation of our solar system and the role that like Jupiter and Saturn played in this. Mm -hmm. And something that came to mind, and it, it, it seems to me that it ought to be obvious just with the moon, but in terms of ecology, what kind of jumped into my thoughts was, well, there's got to be a cosmic ecology as well. And I was wondering if you think that's fair. Maybe you're describing a kind of cosmic ecology. I am indeed. I think the story mm -hmm. of Gaia presents that mm -hmm. because, you know, talking about our solar system and, and, and I, I use the you in both solar and universal mm -hmm. to really continue to emphasize that mind and consciousness aren't something we have. They're literally yeah. what we in the whole world are. So I just wanted to bring that and continue to presence that. Mm -hmm. And, you know, our solar system began five billion there or thereabouts billion years ago, five billion years ago. And it did so as part of an interstellar cloud of dust and gas and, and ice when a nearby, relatively nearby star at the end of its life exploded as a supernova. And it was sufficiently powerful that its shockwaves shocked our part of what was the interstellar dust cloud to form, to gravitationally collapse into our solar system. Had it been nearer and more powerful, it would have destroyed the cloud if it was further away or less powerful it wouldn't have had the you know the the shockwave potential to, to trigger that collapse and we find that you know when we look out now there are there are probably as more planets in our galaxy than there are stars mm. we're finding this preponderance this incredible preponderance of planetary systems now some are very different from ours but we are finding, as we look further, many types of, of solar systems with similar type planets. We do get what's called hot Jupiters, which is really too close to the sun to be able to do much. We get super Earths, which are probably a bit too big. But we do get this range of planets and planetary systems that are incredibly abundant. And the key to then going on to evolve further complexity is the presence of liquid water. Hmm. And our planet is literally in the perfect place, the perfect size, the perfect way in our solar system to have continued this process from her birth about four and a half billion years ago until now. And Jupiter and Saturn have been really important hmm. in helping that process. 
Right. Yeah. My understanding is that especially with Jupiter, it draws in a lot of these like asteroids and whatnot that could destroy Gaia. Yeah. And I just found it so interesting to think of ecology extending beyond the, the, the thin membrane of Gaia, you know, and this idea that, you know, it's not just that we are connected to everything on Gaia, but we are literally connected to everything in the universe in a very meaningful way. Absolutely. And, and you know, we, I know, Nick, you're using the word ecology way beyond biological. Yeah, yeah. But nonetheless, our entire universe is a living mm -hmm. being in that regard, as is Gaia. So, you know, this and of course, that's very much much of the ancient understanding. And also, you know, the ancients did not necessarily see the universe in the great panoply that we do. But it was still a living world for mm -hmm. them as indigenous teachings have also yeah. maintained. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I think that, you know, going back to these earlier cosmologies where another place I see a connection with your work is that so often in these ancient cosmologies, the original condition was viewed as kind of chaos, but it's the, impl the, the implementation of order onto it. And, you know, I think you said originally that it wasn't quite as chaotic as that. No way, it was chaotic. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But it, the order seems to be increasing order, increasing order. Is that well, correct? Yes, yes and no. There's been an innate ordering because yeah. of the, the innate relational or, or literary organization of the entire universe from the get-go. So there's always been that underlying order and actually underlying simplicity mm. through which the complexity can, can arise. Yeah. Right. And, you know, we've been taught in terms of biological, certainly generally in terms of evolutionary teachings and, and in biological evolutionary teachings, that evolution is driven by random occurrences. Mm. Right. And we, we now we have the evidence that's just not the case. Darwin, as far as I'm aware, never talked of randomness. He just talked right. about change. He mm. talked about variability. He talked about the inherence of variable traits and passing them on and, and finding adaptations through them that gave, you know, survival of the fittest, not as the strongest, but the best right. fit within right. the ecological niche and so it was only subsequently way subsequently and even with the discovery of genetics that there was a, a sort of mindset of most of the researchers that it was random mutations that drove evolutionary progress we now have absolutely compelling evidence so that's absolutely not the case that actually biological organisms and cellular mechanisms reduce the random aspect of of replication to an absolute minimum mm. and and the universe is 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 a really good at, at what works works and making mm. sure that that happens and random mutations just don't lead to any meaningful path forward for evolutionary processes so again i'm, I'm laying the evidence out for this mm. and yeah. it's much more guided and much more informed and therefore much more in alignment with that evolutionary impulse. Yeah. And thank you for bringing that up because it's something I wanted to speak with you about because you do make a really good case that evolution is more about cooperation than it is this struggle for survival. And that's something that I really appreciate, but it seems like the human <laughs> animal. <laughs> yeah, what do we do? <laughs> yeah, we 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 seem to want to fight against that. And it feels to me that this idea of, you know, the struggle for the fittest has been interpreted in such a way by small groups of people just to meet a specific end. And it feels like we need to for our own survival need to drop that and recognize the cooperation and the compassion and the empathy that I think are a huge part of evolution. Very much so. I mean, evolution, universal evolution, even before Gaia came into being as a planetary mother, a planetary home, 
was always collaborative because mm. our universe is innately relational. Mm. Now, some of those collaborations are, you know, tensions. They're not all fluffy, stuffy. Mm-hmm. You know, right. there are tensions. And certainly the way that Gaia's progress has continued to evolve has always been through collaborative co-evolutionary processes but whilst within say an ecosystem or within what i describe as the whole gaia sphere there have been tensions when we look at the progress from simplicity to complexity at ever at every sort of jump from simplicity to greater complexity and then onwards has involved multi-level cooperation so whether that was from single cells to, well, non-nucleated cells to nucleated cells, eukaryotic cells to multi-cells to whole ecosystems to the whole of Gaia as a, as a completely interdependent, interlocking, inter-evolutionary being. It's been that, as you say, that evolutionary progress has always been through cooperation. Yeah. And maybe it's just the case that we have to have some of that tension, maybe a little bit of friction in order to advance evolutionarily. That is fine. It's when we've forgotten, when Mm. we've actually forgotten that we're inseparable. And as human Mm. beings, we've bought into this paradigm, this worldview, this mindset of materiality and separation. Then that mindset naturally drives conflict. And all the things that go with it, such as inequalities, injustices, how we treat each other, how we treat our planetary home. Now we've got the evidence absolutely to underpin and frame a unitive narrative. When we come from that perspective, then instead of conflict being the natural outcome of a worldview of separation, peace is a natural Mm. outcome Mm. of a worldview of wholeness. And Mm. that's what we're you know that's what we're now i think on the threshold of and and i'm not judging the journey we've been on Mm. it's taught us a lot so let's learn from the past Mm. let's take the best of what we've learned forward let's also at the same time realize that we're holding a lot of collective trauma Mm. from that mindset of separation so let's come together to heal and support each other through this healing journey because then we can come together to literally link up and lift up and answer the invitation of our universe to consciously evolve. Yeah, so quite literally, it seems that what we have to do is a kind of remembering. Totally. And I love the way you you, you say it in such a beautiful way. It's not a remembering. It's not an intellectual thing. It's a remembering of a psyche and a collective psyche that has been dismembered mm. through this journey. And we're now at a point and a place and a moment of choice where we can remember who we really are. Yeah. And I think that also has parallels in some cosmologies and myths of the divine figure emerging out of the darkness. And I know there have been interpretations of this as being, you know, consciousness emerging out of the unconscious, but often these divinities are dismembered and then have to be gathered together again. And it seems that maybe this is something where the ancient myths still have a lesson for us. I think they have many lessons for us, many, yeah. many lessons for us. And I, I'd only say that many of them do talk about the sort of hero's journey. Yeah. And, you know, I, I think that's wonderful. And now it's a collective hero's journey a friend of <laughs> a friend of mine came up with the term it's a, a weirdo's journey because it's all about <laughs> us and I, I talk now about conscious revolution but also mm. I heard not long ago this idea of conscious we evolution mm. yeah. this is what this is about it's not about one of us however brave however amazing on this hero's journey to realization it's for all of us this is mm. our heritage and this Mm. can be our evolutionary destiny yeah i think that a lot of this answers the question that i wanted to ask but i'm going to ask this anyway just to see if there's anything that we're missing here but i was curious 
what are the implications of this cosmology? It seems like it is this sort of remembering and being co-creators. Is there anything else that is important to think of in this cosmology that you're presenting? It is a cosmology of love. Mm. It's a science of love. Mm. It's a way of, it's far more than a potential scientific revolution. Mm. You know, we talk about scientific revolutions from the Copernican revolution where, you know, instead of earth-centered, we went to sun-centered. We talk about the quantum and the Mm. relativity revolutions. Those were scientific revolutions. And to some degree, they did change the way we thought about ourselves. But this is truly revolutionary Mm. in the sense that we cannot stay or we can choose to stay in the old paradigm of of separation. But we now have the evidence that it's fundamentally not all science progresses. It doesn't throw everything out. It progresses into deeper awareness. It includes and transcends. So what this does is it includes and transcends the journey so far, but it does so in such a revolutionary way because what's gone with the prior paradigm has been this this interpretation of separation and materiality and peripheralization of consciousness and the energy and sorry, the evidence is not enabling us to stay with that perception anymore. It's compelling us to, you know, to re- view the entirety of reality and so it's not just a nice scientific thing happening out there or very small it's our everyday lives Mm. it's how do we choose to be to live to experience you know it's Mm. not just for science it's far far too important right 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 yeah, I mentioned this on the podcast fairly frequently, but it's the, the work of Thomas Kuhn's, you know, the structure yes. of scientific revolution yes, that you were just speaking of. And, you know, for him, there was always what prompted a new revolution, what prompted the new paradigm was that the old paradigm, there were always there was always an anomaly, something Absolutely. that it couldn't answer for. Absolutely. And I have been saying for years now that consciousness is the anomaly because the old materialistic yes. paradigm can't answer it. And everyone's like, we don't know what we're going to do with this. How do we answer this? So let's not even bother asking the question. And, and I think it's so fundamental to bring that in because it's such a, it's foundational for our experience. It is. And yet what we're talking about here is universal consciousness so it's wonderful to to sort of you know be these microcosmic co-creators of our universe's reality that we are but if we weren't here the universe doesn't just bet on one thing in that regard right recognizing that there are more planets and stars in our in our galaxy and beyond life biological emergence as part of a living universe in its entirety seems to be finding a way wherever and however it can to continue that evolutionary arc of of individuated self-awareness and so absolutely you know that peripheralization of consciousness a hundred or so years ago and a very determined approach to keeping it out there cannot hold anymore because consciousness and mind are being absolutely shown to be the fundamental stuff of reality. Yeah. yeah. So the universe will do just fine if um, humans are no longer on the scene. <laughs> oh, what a waste. I know, isn't it? What a waste of opportunity yeah. when we're, you know, as I say, our heart heritage is 13.8 billion years in the making. Yeah. We've come to this point. You know, we can wake up mm. and remember, we can take our invited place as co-evolutionary partners of that evolutionary impulse Mm. of Gaia, our universe, and and all the beings that form part of the universe soul, you know, the multidimensionality of it, the adventure of it, Mm. the wonder of it is ours to choose. Yeah. Well, and, you know, it seems that not just consciousness, but that maybe what we need to do is participate in the creativity 
of, oh, sure. of the universe. For sure. I mean, that's that almost is a given. Yeah, yeah. You know, our universe cannot be non-creative. Right, <laughs> it's right. innately creative. Yeah. And so we, we're a creative species. We're a curious species. Mm. We're a, innately, we're a loving species. Yeah. You know, yeah. it's, and now we have the opportunity to remember all of that. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's a way better starting place than in some mythic traditions that, you know, were inherently, or, and even philosophical traditions that were inherently selfish and corrupt and sinful and whatnot. I think the stories that we tell ourselves are powerful. And I think that the story you're telling is important for those very reasons. Thank you. Well, it, it, it offers, I, I do feel because it's evidentially based, it truly offers us authentic hope yeah it empowers us because it yeah. brings meaning and purpose yeah. back into yeah. a universe it brings a living universe into a living universe within us and us yeah. as part of a living universe and planet yeah 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 well i know that we're running out of time and you just said something that i ask guests about a lot and i think you just answered this because one of my primary concerns is our current ecological crises. And sometimes I will ask guests if they have hope. And you seem to have hope. I do. And I, I described as authentic hope because, yeah. you know, we are, we have the evidence apart from everything else. We have this convergence now mm. and we have the evidence that ours is a universe that invites us to evolve with it. Yeah. A, a planetary home that invites us to evolve consciously with her. Yeah. So that's what I do feel gives us authentic hope. Yeah. Because it's grounded. You know, unity isn't ideal. Unity, right. as my dear friend Dr. Julie right. Kroll says, is real. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it seems like we have to learn to recognize both the diversity Absolutely. and the unit and the unity. Absolutely. Unity is not uniformity. Right. Is, and unity expressed in radical diversity. You know, a universe, a planetary home where every leaf on every tree is different, where every mm. snowflake is different. Goodness me, where every human being is uniquely different. And yet we're all part of the wholeness, mm. the oneness, the life of the whole. Yeah. Well, that message right there, I think, gives me great hope. I, I I just hope that enough of us will will, and I think that maybe we will. Do you think that the science will lead us to that? Do you think that more people like you telling the story? I think it's many ways, and you know there is a there is a view which I I agree with that it's not facts that change folks; it's right. it's emotions. Yeah. And yet, what we what we care about, we look after. What we look after, we tend to love. Right. So the story of Gaia is a love letter. Mm. it's a love letter to our planetary home and i hope that readers reading it will fall in love yeah. with gaia and at the end of the book perhaps being you know to, to to say yes to an invitation mm. to live as a gaian right or instead of you know our earth being something outside ourselves that gaia lives in us and we live in gaia yeah yeah and we live in the mind of the universe as well yes. We are part of the mind of the universe. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and do you think Gaia has, I, I think I know the answer to this question, but Gaia has a mind as well? Of course. Yeah. How could she not? How could, you know, how could you get a non-sentient planet in a sentient universe with right. sentient beings such as ourselves living on it? I mean, it just right. doesn't, it, it doesn't yeah. factor. Of yeah. course she, of course yeah. she yeah. My understanding is that James Lovelock was, kind of hesitant to go that far but privately he would be like yeah <laughs> privately a he, was, I can, I, he was because we had a conversation yeah. privately yeah. but you know and 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 i think you know he's he's recently passed over to yeah. an amazing yeah. amazing pioneer yeah. you know james was and gave us so much deeper understanding i suspect that if he'd been born maybe a few years later he would have gone, yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, it, it's encouraging that it seems that more people and more scientists are actually open to saying yes to this idea now. 
Because a good scientist follows the evidence wherever it leads. That's mm. what the absolutely, you know, key North Star of, mm. of, of a, a true scientist is. You follow the evidence wherever it leads. And I think you're right, because more and more scientists are, are on this journey and, and say, my goodness, this is what the evidence is showing us. Uh, and then the spiritual teachings are that we can put ourselves in alignment with the Absolutely. mind and evolution of the universe. Absolutely. That's why this convergence of, of, of science and, and sort of, you know, the, the, the tenets of interspirituality and indigenous teachings, mm -hmm. you know, that whole integration is so absolutely marvelous and 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 you know it is our moment of choice yeah. it's like this is the moment where all of this coming together offer this is what offers us authentic hope yeah yeah well let us choose wisely <laughs> let us choose wisely absolutely yeah, yeah. And, and and with love and with love always with love yeah. always with love. so let me ask you one final question what is coming up next for you I have no idea. <laughs> Other than lots of sharings in different ways, this, this, you know, this message, this understanding and inviting and encouraging mm -hmm. people not to read the book because I want lots of royalties because that isn't yeah. it at all, but it is right. to invite people on a journey themselves mm -hmm. that maybe, you know, will they will find changes themselves in that right. regard so that they can be uh, you know, on their journey be open to this understanding and then can you know link up and lift up with others the more yeah. of us that do this and the many different voices that tell this story in their own ways that mm -hmm. do this then literally this is what changes everything right right yeah absolutely and you know um it seems like our creativity and our curiosity is could be our saving grace for all of this you know? I yes, and and our hearts. Yeah, yeah. Hearts. Yeah. So I understand you have a website, judecuravan.com. Is that the best place for people to find out more probably, about you and your work? Probably not. Probably no? not. I sort of use it as a landing thing, but oh, okay. I, I co-founded Whole World View five okay. years ago, Cosmic Hologram, and to serve the understanding, experiencing, and embodying of unitive mm -hmm. awareness. Okay. So for folks to go to www.whole, W-H-O-L-E, world, W-O-R-L-D, hyphen, view, V-I-E-W.org, lots of resources, lots of podcasts and, and, and many other things, and also to sign up for a newsletter that, that shares not just from you know, my perspective, but from many different perspectives, this onward journey. Okay, wonderful. I would put a link for that in the show notes and video description. And I'll also put links for your book. And I need to read the uh, Cosmic Hologram now, I think, as a <laughs> uh, partner for the Gaia story or the story of Gaia, excuse me. Yeah. Um, yeah. That would be great, Nick. And, and you'll yeah. find, and I'd say to everybody, the, the Cosmic Hologram is the understanding of all mm. of this. So it's quite sciencey. Yeah. The story of Gaia is more about experiencing this. Yeah. So although yeah. it's it has the science, it also, I hope, speaks to the hearts. Of, yeah, of yeah. Yeah, I think it did. I think it did. It was a good read and left me feeling a little hopeful, too. Excellent. Yeah. Glad to hear it. Yeah. So, Jude, thank you so much for your time in this conversation. I really appreciate it. You're very, very welcome. And thank you, Nick, for all that you do so wonderfully. All right. Well, thank you. And that's a wrap on episode 64 of Rebel Spirit Radio. Thank you so much for listening or watching if you are part of my YouTube audience or view this on Spotify. Now, before I say anything else, I'd like to give a special shout out to Jennifer O'Brennan for being the first person to become a Rebel Spirit Radio patron. There really aren't words to adequately express how immensely grateful I am for your generosity and support, Jennifer. So I'll just say you are awesome and truly a rebel spirit. For anyone else who would like to follow in Jennifer's steps uh, and would like to contribute to this podcast by becoming a patron, there are currently four levels of membership, Seeker, Sage, Adept, and Guru. 
Some of the perks available include early access to videos, shout outs to members, uh, members only Facebook page, access to the Rebel Spirit Radio Discourse server, a monthly book club, and the opportunity to join me and special guests for a monthly cocktail apocalypse, happy hour at the end of the world. You can find the link for the Patreon in the show notes or video description. And of course, if you'd rather make a one-time payment, you can still do so via PayPal. If you enjoyed this podcast, please make sure to give it a positive rating on whatever platform you use to listen to podcasts. It only takes a second and your five-star ratings really do help, especially if you listen on Apple. If you have a minute to spare, please consider posting a short but positive review. And also one of the best ways of helping me is to share this with friends, family members, or even coworkers. And please subscribe. For those viewing on YouTube, please give this video a thumbs up and subscribe to the channel. Make sure you hit that notification bell so you will be informed when I upload new content. I'm Nick Mather, and you've been listening to Rebel Spirit Radio. Until next time, may you be in peace, may you flourish in all possible ways, and may you continue to nurture your rebel spirit.